Welcome to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. New equipment helps patients improve mobility. It's out of Cedar Rapids by Isabella Zaluska. Two-year-old Olivia Hausman has had an uphill battle from day one, but she hasn't stopped fighting. Olivia's mom, Jody Jung, said her daughter is an inspiration and a fighter. Olivia, who turns three next month, was born in February 2020 at 24 weeks and five days gestation. She weighed 13 ounces when she was born. The biggest goal for parents, Jung and Chase Hausman of Van Horn, was for their daughter to survive. Olivia spent nine months in the neonatal intensive care units in Iowa City and Cedar Rapids. She was transferred to a hospital in Chicago for surgery on her right eye, which she cannot see out of. While in the NICU, doctors discovered Olivia had various broken bones because she was born so early. She also needed a breathing tube for several months. She's just overcome so many battles, Jung said, calling her daughter a miracle. Jung and Hausman were able to bring Olivia home in November 2020, and Olivia finally got to meet her three older siblings, Zoe, 17, Cole, 14, and Callie, 9. Jung says Olivia loves interacting with her siblings. They are her favorite people, and the four kids have an amazing bond. Soon after being released from the NICU, Olivia started appointments at Whitworth Children's Therapy when she was nine months old. For about two weeks, Olivia has gone to weekly therapy appointments. Jung said that it has been surreal to see Olivia's progress of crawling, pulling herself up, and learning to walk because at one point, the family didn't know if she'd ever be able to do those things. One of Olivia's goals is to walk unassisted, which she's been working toward with the help of the Miracle, I'm sorry, the Miracolt new equipment at Unity Point Health, St. Louis Whitmer Children's Therapy in Cedar Rapids. Miracolt mimics riding a horse, and Whitmer is currently the only therapy clinic in the state that uses this equipment in sessions. Miracolt added to treatment toolbox. St. Luke's Foundation received a $17,281 grant from Variety, the children's charity, to purchase two Miracolt horse riding simulator machines. The Miracolt was developed and built by Chariot Innovations, a company based out of Baylor University in Texas. The equipment allows Whitworth Children's Therapy to offer the benefits of hippotherapy within the clinic environment. Hippotherapy is a type of therapy that uses the natural gait and movement of a horse to provide motor and sensory input. The Miracolt includes motions that mimic the three-dimensional quality of a horse's gait and offers features other therapy equipment does not. The equipment has been used in medical and therapy clinics across the country. Excuse me, across the county. The equipment is expected to help individuals with cerebral palsy, autism, spectrum disorder, and other neuromuscular conditions, according to a news release. This form of therapy has been proved to show improvements in mobility, balance, control of posture, walking, speaking, and motor skills. The Miracolt is an exciting addition to our treatment toolbox, said Sarah Bankston, Whitworth's senior physical therapist and clinic supervisor. The equipment challenges children's balance and postural control and is a fun way to work on these and other movement skills in a clinic-based setting. Whitworth Children's Therapy offered hippotherapy before the COVID-19 pandemic. Even before the pandemic, therapists saw there were barriers for patients with this type of therapy, including traveling to the stable. This tool has opened increased opportunities for the therapist to utilize the principles of hippotherapy with an increased variety of patients, said Carrie Andrews, senior physical therapist, making good progress. 
Jung said Olivia has been using the Miracult in her sessions for a couple of months and loves it. During the last two years of appointments at Whitwer, Olivia has worked on rolling over, sitting, pulling herself up, and standing. Jung said she has made good progress. When she came here two years ago, she couldn't really hold her head up that well, Jung said. Her head was still really wobbly. So to see her able to do all this, like I would never have imagined that she'd be doing that already. Andrews, who is Olivia's physical therapist, said the Miracult is used as part of a patient's session instead of taking up the whole session like hippotherapy typically did. Olivia would be too small for hippotherapy on an actual horse, but she can use the Miracult, Andrews said. Olivia will be a flower girl at a wedding in August. Jung said her goal is for Olivia to walk down the aisle at the wedding, either with or without an assisted walker. Jung says Olivia has always been motivated by her own movement. Jung said her daughter's personality is infectious and she radiates happiness. She has to work harder than other kids because it takes her body a little bit longer to do everything, Jung said. Watching her learn how to sit and learn how to pull herself up to stand, each one of those milestones has just been extra sweet because we know how far she's come. Olivia also is working on feeding therapy, which has been one of the hardest skills, Jung said. Olivia currently has a G-tube for feeding. She also is working on opening her hands and is learning sign language to communicate because she's not speaking yet. She does both physical and occupational therapy. She's going to start three-year-old preschool this month, two days a week, for half days. I think it'll be literally good for her to interact with other kids her age, Jung said. Jung said it's also been fun to be able to do things as a family, such as taking Olivia to her siblings' athletic events. They like knowing that she's there in the stands watching them, Jung said. They love being able to take a picture with her after their game. She'll know her story. When Olivia was in the NICU, Jung started a Facebook group to post updates about her daughter's journey for friends, family, and others who heard her story. The page, Tiny But Mighty, Olivia Joe, has nearly 2,000 members who keep up with updates on Olivia's progress. Jung posts less often now than she used to, but she still updates the group a couple of times per month. One day, when Olivia is older, Jung plans to share the updates with her daughter. She'll know her story, and she'll know that she's strong and she can overcome anything, Jung said. Our next story, three Iowa departments which serve millions merging. Work combines human services, public health, aging. This is by Erin Murphy. Um, It's out of Des Moines. Over 5,000 state workers, more than $2 billion in state funding, or more than a quarter of the state budget. And millions of Iowans, including those on Medicaid, impacted by the services offered. There is much at stake as the state of Iowa continues to cement in state law the merger of three state departments, human services, public health, and aging, into one mega-department, the new Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. That work will continue in the 2023 session of the Iowa legislature, which begins Monday. State lawmakers set the legislative process in motion during last year's session, in which they established a framework for the merger and created new benchmarks for the newly formed department to reach before its official first day on July 1st. More legislation will be required to continue the merger. Leaders among Republican state lawmakers, who have agenda-setting majorities in both the Iowa House and Senate, indicated they are deferring to Governor Kim Reynolds, who proposed the merger in 2020, and Kelly Garcia, who directs the former Human Services and Public Health Departments and will be director of the new Health and Human Services Department. Reynolds declined to be interviewed for the Gazette's legislative preview series. Garcia was not made available for an interview after multiple requests. 
A spokeswoman cited Garcia's busy schedule. I think the governor has the right person there, said Pat Grassley, the Republican House Speaker from New Hartford. If you're going to make that transition, Director Garcia is someone that, of any director I've ever worked with in that department, she's the most accessible. Seems like really has things put together well over there. Garcia's salary is capped by state law at $154,300, but she earns tens of thousands more. Garcia, who directs both the Human Services and Public Health Departments, was among state directors previously approved by Reynolds for a bonus. Garcia was paid $231,788 in fiscal 2022, state records show. The Human Services Department employs 5,022 state workers and the Public Health Department another 462, according to a transition report filed by Garcia in September. State lawmakers in the current state budget appropriated just more than $2 billion collectively to the Human Services, Public Health, and Aging Departments. The budgets for the State Veterans Affairs Department and the Iowa Veterans Home also were included in that state funding. Grassley and Jack Whitver, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, said they look forward to any efficiencies that can be created by the merger. I'm always supportive of trying to create efficiencies or modernizing state government, Whitver said. Some of these state agencies, the way these are set up, have been set up that way for decades, and the world changes, organizations change, and governments should change too. So I'm totally comfortable with trying to create efficiencies or modernize different parts of government. Democratic leaders said they will be watching the legislation to ensure Iowans who rely on the services provided by the agencies do not get lost in the shuffle. Among Democrats' primary concerns is the state's $6 billion Medicaid program, which served 893,804 Iowans over the past year, according to a recent state report. The Medicaid program is funded by a combination of state and federal dollars. Iowa contracts with two private health care companies, and a third will join in July, that manage the program. We're going to be watching pretty closely because at the end of the day, these organizations are designed to help Iowans who are most vulnerable and in critical need, said Jennifer Conferst, the leader of the minority party, Democrats in the House. So are we currently meeting those needs appropriately? I would say probably not. Will merging these departments make it easier for Iowans to access these services? Well, they better if Republicans are going to get any support from us on this. So at the end of the day, our biggest concern is, can Iowans who need help get the help they need in a way that doesn't overburden them, and then in a way that allows them to get back to living a life that is full and whole? Zach Walls, who leads the minority party Democrats in the Iowa Senate, shared conference concern and also said he wants to be certain that the state does not lose focus from its public health department, especially on the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think the number one concern is obviously making sure that we have a seamless transition for Iowans who depend on things like Medicaid and other state services. That's not easy, but it's critically important, Walls said. I think number two is, given how substantial the human service portion is going to be of the newly merged HHS, making sure that we don't lose sight of the public health mission that is continuing to be front and center. Our next article is Attorney, Iowa City's Hamburg Inn Not Closing. Staff at the iconic restaurant had announced a shutdown last week. This is by Aaron Jordan, and it comes out of Iowa City. If you've never eaten a pie shake, bought a tie-dye t-shirt, or crowded in the doorway to get a table at the Hamburg Inn, number two, you'll still have your chance. The iconic diner is not closing despite what its staff reported last week to the public, an attorney for the owner 
owner, said Monday. There are no plans to close the restaurant, said Kim Bear, a Des Moines attorney who represents Hamburg Inn owner Michael Lee. In fact, his plans are just the exact opposite. Hamburg Inn managers told media outlets, including the Gazette, the restaurant was closing because the building in the north side neighborhood needed repairs and they couldn't make contact with Lee, who was in Taiwan. Bear said miscommunication caused staff to think the restaurant was closing. They are making some updates and repairs, so they've had limited hours, she said. Unfortunately, that somehow was construed as an intent to close the restaurant permanently, which is not the intent. Repairs to the roof and other parts of the building are being made, and Bear said she expects the restaurant to be open full-time in the next few weeks. A sign on the door Monday said the Hamburg was open for dine-in or carry-out, but the restrooms were not open. Michiko Minora Debussy, 43, and Joseph Debussy, 48, both of Coralville, stopped by the restaurant Monday for breakfast. They'd heard the news Hamburg was closing, then saw Bear's comments that the restaurant would remain open. They bought a t-shirt and mugs just in case. We've been coming here for 15 years, Debosi said. We love this place. They ordered the presidential breakfast, which is two eggs, hash browns, or home fries, choice of bread, and choice of protein. They've also visited the Hamburg to see presidential candidates, including John Edwards, who was the Democratic vice presidential candidate in 2004, and after losing, ran again for president in 2008. We're news junkies, Manura Debosi said. We always like coming when we can see a candidate in person. The Hamburg has been a frequent stop for political candidates and sitting leaders, including Presidents Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. Lee, a native of China and University of Iowa graduate, purchased the restaurant from Dave Panther in 2016. Panther's family had owned the Lynn Street restaurant since 1948. The restaurant first opened in 1935. Substantial building maintenance needs all mounted at once after the blizzard earlier in December, the Gazette reported last week. Bear said she had checked with Lee's accountant to confirm staff have been paid, despite some statements otherwise. Due to the reduced hours, there has been reduced income, but everyone, to the owner's knowledge, has been paid. Our next headline is Iowa Church, IRS Fight Over Drug Ceremonies. Ayahuasca's teachings built built around use of hallucinogenic by Clark Kaufman out of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. An Iowa-based church that allegedly charges members up to $800 to use a hallucinogenic drug in religious ceremonies is continuing to pursue a four-year battle to win tax-exempt status. Last year, the the Iowaska Church of Healing sued the IRS in U.S. District Court challenging the federal agency's decision to deny the church status as a nonprofit tax-exempt organization. State records indicate the church was formed in Iowa in September 2018 and is run by Admir Dado Kantarovich, along with Billy Benskin and Merzuk Ramek. Currently, the church's official headquarters are Kantarovich's former home in Des Moines, which he sold in July. According to court filings, the church originally intended to purchase land in Iowa for a permanent worship facility and related structures, with Florida serving as a potential secondary location. The church and its legal counsel say they ultimately decided to instead establish a physical location in Florida because Iowa, unlike Florida, has no state version of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Court records indicate the church now has 20 members in Columbia, Sweden, and six states, including Iowa. IRS church members pay for ceremonies. Ayahuasca's teachings are built around the use of ayahuasca, 
which is brewed from the leaves of shrubs and vines found in the Amazon. Elements of those plants have powerful hallucinogenic properties, which the church says can be used to awaken the third eye of its followers. In court filings, the church acknowledges that under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, an ingredient of ayahuasca called dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, is a Schedule I drug and a hallucinogenic alkaloid, and that there is no statutory exemption allowing for its use in religious ceremonies. According to the federal government, prospective members of the Ayahuasca Church of Healing must complete a written membership application and pay a membership fee of $60. Members are then given the opportunity to pay for attendance at group ceremonies to consume the sacrament of Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca acknowledges that it held a total of five such ceremonies over three weekends in May, June, and July 2019. The IRS alleges members paid $333 each to attend the ceremonies, with additional private ceremonies offered at $800 each. In January 2019, Ayahuasca filed an application with the IRS seeking tax-exempt status and was denied. After an appeal was filed, a final determination letter denying tax-exempt status was issued in June 2021, stating that the Church's use of the sacrament of Ayahuasca in its religious practices was illegal. In response to the Church's lawsuit seeking judicial review of that decision, the IRS told the court the denial was made for multiple reasons, including a finding that the Church's activities are illegal under federal law and violate public policy, and that it is not a church or a convention or association of churches as defined by federal tax regulations. A trial date has yet to be scheduled in the case, and last year both sides filed motions for summary judgment in their favor. The court had yet, has yet to rule on those motions. In their most recent court filings, lawyers for the IRS told the court that even if Ayahuasca had other tax-exempt purposes and activities, the presence of a single, non-exempt purpose, in this case the distribution of Ayahuasca, is substantial and has destroyed its exemption. Court records indicate that in December 2005, Kantarovic, then a personal trainer, was convicted of possession of anabolic steroids and sentenced to one year of probation. He was charged in connection with a federal investigation into the illegal importation of steroids for bodybuilders. As part of Kantarovic's guilty plea, he acknowledged that it was his understanding the drugs came from an internationally known bodybuilder and were intended for another bodybuilder who was a top competitor in the 2004 Mr. Universe contest. Our next story Bremer County is latest to consider CO2 pipeline rules. Lynn County sends its safety ordinance back for more work. This is by Andy Malone, and it is out of Waverly. A Bremer County ordinance regulating land use for carbon sequestration pipelines now is in the pipeline. It has received a favorable recommendation from the Planning and Zoning Commission and could come before the county's Board of Supervisors for the first of three considerations as soon as the end of January, according to Building and Zoning Administrator Lindsay Lambert. Bremer County is one of a handful of local governments working to restrict what hazardous material pipelines can be built and where, but it will not prohibit pipeline construction altogether. Navigator Heartland Greenway is proposing to build a carbon dioxide sequestration pipeline in Iowa, one leg of which would go through Butler, Floyd, Bremer, Buchanan, Hardin, Franklin, Fayette, and Delaware counties. 
Last month, the Lynn County Board of Supervisors voted to delay a proposed ordinance that could affect the route of the CO2 pipeline proposed by Wolf Carbon Solutions, a 280-mile carbon dioxide sequestration pipeline through Iowa, including Lynn County, to connect ADM ethanol plants and others. The proposed Lynn County ordinance, which would have established how close the underground pipeline could come to facilities, including schools, hospitals, and homes, is being reworked and could come back to the board in the new year. Under the proposed Bremer County ordinance, its zoning office and board of adjustment would have jurisdiction on whether a conditional use permit is granted to a pipeline company. This will allow the county to protect future land use and economic development, Lambert said. The county's priorities are laser-focused on that. The ordinance will allow the county to preserve agricultural land, but also ensure the ability of our small towns to continue to grow. It will preserve our tax base and future revenues. It will ensure that this new land use doesn't interfere with existing land uses in our county. Three companies, including Summit Carbon Solutions, besides Navigator and Wolf, currently are working towards obtaining hazardous liquid pipeline permits from the Iowa Utilities Board. Any outright ban would have to come from the state. In particular, Lambert said her office and outside legal counsel modeled this Bremer County ordinance on one produced in Shelby County. The class of use known as hazardous liquid pipelines will be established and restrictions will focus on setback requirements. The requirements are designed to further the goals and objectives of the comprehensive zoning plan, including to protect public health and welfare, to preserve existing infrastructure and future development, and to maintain property values, the ordinance says. They include minimum separation distances from schools, hospitals, churches, parks, animal feeding facilities, electric power generating facilities, public wastewater treatment plants, private water supply wells, and any occupied structures, to name a few. The permit also comes with a slew of emergency response and hazard mitigation planning requirements, including information that would aid in implementation. For instance, one requirement asks the company to provide an estimate of the worst-case discharge of carbon dioxide released in metric tons and standard cubic feet from a rupture. The company would be required to pay an annual fee of $116.92 per mile of pipeline or $3,390 for 29 miles to go towards local emergency response, planning, and training. Affected landowners, too, need to obtain the conditional use permit. However, landowners who engage in easement negotiations with the company or reach agreement before the day of adoption would not need to obtain the permit. Lambert said it's possible the county could pass the ordinance but be challenged in court. Summit filed lawsuits in November in Shelby and Story counties to block the similar ordinances there. Okay, we'll have a story from the Nation World section titled Moscow says Ukrainian rocket strike kills 63 Russian troops. Russian drone attacks continue to target Kiev. Kiev, Ukraine. Ukrainian forces fired rockets at a facility in the eastern Donetsk region where Russian soldiers were stationed, killing 63 of them. Russia's defense ministry said Monday in one of the deadliest attacks on the Kremlin's forces since the war began more than 10 months ago. Ukrainian forces fired six rockets from an HIMARS launch system, and two of them were shot down, a defense ministry statement said. It did not say when the strike happened. The strike, using a U.S.-supplied precision weapon that has proven critical in enabling Ukrainian forces to hit key targets, 
delivered a new setback for Russia, which in recent months has reeled from a Ukrainian counteroffensive. According to the governor of Russia's Samara region, Dmitry Azarov, an unspecified number of residents of the region were among those killed and wounded by the strike on the town of Makivka. Russian military bloggers, whose information has largely been reliable during the war, said ammunition stored close to the facility had exploded in the attack and contributed to the high number of casualties. Expressing anger at the losses, Daniil Beznov, an official with the Russian-appointed administration in Russia-occupied Donsk, called for the punishment of military officers who ordered a large number of troops to be stationed at the facility. The Ukrainian military appeared to acknowledge the attack Monday, with the general staff confirming that Makivka was hit on December 31st and saying 10 Russian military vehicles were destroyed or damaged. It added that Russian personnel losses still were being clarified. In a claim that could not be independently verified, the Strategic Communications Directorate of Ukraine's Armed Forces had maintained Sunday that some 400 mobilized Russian soldiers were killed in a vocational school building in Makivka and about 300 more were wounded. The Russian statement said the strike occurred in the area of Makivka and didn't mention the vocational school. Meanwhile, Russia deployed multiple exploding drones in another nighttime attack on Ukraine, officials said Monday, as the Kremlin signaled no let-up in its strategy of using bombardments to target the country's energy infrastructure and wear down Ukrainian resistance to its invasion. The barrage was the latest in a series of relentless year-end attacks, including one that killed three civilians on New Year's Eve. On Monday, Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said that 40 drones headed for Kiev overnight. All of them were destroyed, according to air defense forces. Klitschko said 22 drones were destroyed over Kiev, three in the outlying Kiev region, and 15 over neighboring provinces. Energy infrastructure facilities were damaged as a result of the attack, and an explosion occurred in one city district, the mayor said. It wasn't immediately clear whether that was caused by drones or other munitions. A wounded 19-year-old man was hospitalized, Klitschko added, and emergency power outages were underway in the capital. In the outlying Kiev region, a critical infrastructure object and residential buildings were hit, Governor Oleksiy Kuleba said. Russia has carried out airstrikes on Ukrainian power and water supplies almost weekly since October. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has accused Russia of energy terrorism as the aerial bombardments have left many people without heat amid freezing temperatures. Ukrainian officials say Moscow is weaponizing winter in its effort to demoralize the Ukrainian resistance. Ukraine is using sophisticated Western-supplied weapons to help shoot down Russia's missiles and drones, as well as send artillery fire into Russia-held areas of the country. Moscow's full-scale invasion, February 24th, has gone awry, putting pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin as his ground forces struggle to hold ground and advance. He said in his New Year's address to the nation that 2022 was a year of difficult, necessary decisions. Putin insists he had no choice but to send troops into Ukraine because it threatened Russian security, an assertion condemned by the West, which says Moscow bears full responsibility for the war. Russia is currently observing public holidays through January 8th. Okay, we'll read um, a guest column by Mike Nag. Um, In the opinion section, opportunity exists in Iowa agriculture. 
As we consider resolutions in anticipation of the new year, it's also a time to reflect upon the past year. For Iowa agriculture, 2022 was a year of both historic challenges and yet many reasons to be optimistic about our future. While there's a lot of uncertainty due to a disrupted global economy, there's one thing we do know. Agriculture continues to drive our economy here in Iowa. One in five Iowans go to work each day in an agriculture-related job. The impact of Iowa agriculture reaches well beyond our own communities, given that we produce significantly more than we can consume. We have both an opportunity and the responsibility to help provide for consumers all over the globe. Even with persistent drought conditions, which affected everything from crop production to haying and grazing, Iowa's farmers still managed to produce a sizable corn and soybean crop. As we look ahead to next spring, we have significant moisture deficits to make up. Economic concerns such as rising interest rates, expensive input costs, labor shortages, and trade uncertainty also factor into the equation, though we continue to see prices reflecting strong demand. Congress also will begin consideration of the next farm bill, and Iowans should fully engage in those discussions. We also continue to see momentum growing in our state's water quality and conservation efforts. There are more resources, partners, and actual conservation work being implemented across the state than ever before. We are approaching 3 million acres of cover crops and are partnering with more than 350 public and private agencies and organizations statewide. As we head toward the 10-year anniversary of the state's nutrient reduction strategy, we must keep scaling up, accelerating our work, and demonstrating progress. Highly pathogenic avian influenza, spread by wild and migratory birds, has added unwanted stress to our state's poultry farmers and egg producers. Because of the lessons learned from the 2015 outbreak, we have experienced far fewer cases this year. However, the joint state and federal response has required significant time, resources, and coordination in order to limit the spread of this destructive virus. Going forward, we must continue to be vigilant with our biosecurity and remain prepared to respond to other foreign animal diseases. Thanks to the legislature and Governor Kim Reynolds, we enacted one of the most robust biofuels programs in the country. This legislation will ensure Iowans have access to lower cost and cleaner burning fuels at the pump while ramping up the investment in our state's biofuels infrastructure. We also saw significant progress with the Choose Iowa program, which will establish an easily recognizable state brand that can be used by farmers, producers, processors, farmers markets, grocery stores, restaurants, and others in the supply chain to connect directly with consumers. We cannot predict all that will confront us in the next year. However, if we keep farmers at the center of our solutions, I am confident that in this new year and future years will offer plenty of reasons for optimism. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Audrey L. King, out of Cedar Rapids. Audrey L. King, 84, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Saturday, December 31st. A visitation will be held on Saturday, January 7th, 2 to 3 p.m., at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories. 
Funeral service will follow at 3 p.m., burial at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Audrey Lee Jenkins was born on August 22, 1938, to Evelyn Call Baisley and Herbert Jenkins in Brooklyn, New York. Audrey was united in marriage to John Leroy King on September 9, 1956. She was employed at Kmart for 24, excuse me, 25 years before retiring in 2002. Audrey enjoyed bingo, collecting elephants, puzzles, playing Scrabble, crosswords, crocheting, and gift-giving. She loved big get-togethers and going out to eat. Audrey had a great sense of humor and was loved by all who knew her. She will be greatly missed by her children. Audrey is survived by her children, Joanne Stevenson, Norman King, Terry King, John King, James King, Susan Durgan, Mark, wife Don King, Dan, wife Jennifer King, and Amy, husband Jim, Burgess, 29 grandchildren, 28 great-grandchildren, two great-great-grandchildren, siblings, Bernice Rose and Patricia Walsh, sister-in-law, Dorothy Sainer, and son-in-law, Alan Stevenson. She was preceded in death by her husband, John, parents, daughter, Sandra Stevenson, son-in-law, David Stevenson, and brother, Isaac Baisley. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be directed to the family. Hazel Marie Cobb, North English. Hazel Marie Cobb, 95, of North English, went to be with the Lord January 1st at her home in North English. Hazel is survived by a granddaughter, Jenny, husband Tim Reeves, great-granddaughter, Rachel Reeves of Knoxville, Iowa, great-granddaughter Hazel, husband Colton, Ray, Rob, great-granddaughter Maisie Rabe, and great-great-grandson Grady Rabe of Blairstown, Iowa, a great-grandson Beck Bouslog of Oceanside, California, and many nieces and nephews. Hazel was preceded in death by her husband Glenn Cobb, daughters Glenna Lee Anderson and Mary Bouslog, a son Robert Bobby Cobb, and a grandson, Jared Bouslog. Hazel was born August 24, 1927, to Wayne Perky Wade and Jenny Wade in Parnell, Iowa. She moved to North English in 1932 and went to North English High School. She met her husband, Glenn, on Main Street in North English, and they were engaged before she was out of high school. Glenn was drafted and joined the U.S. Navy in 1944, stationed in Ocean View, Virginia. With their parents' permission, they were married on March 29, 1945, in the Methodist Church in North English. Hazel went back to Virginia with Glenn after their marriage and worked at Annex 2 on the base selling coffee and sandwiches until December of 1945, when Glenn was sent to Cuba. At that time, she came back to North English and worked at the fair store. When Glenn returned home, they farmed for over 40 years in the White Pigeon area. In 1990, they moved to North English. Hazel enjoyed cooking, playing cards, dancing, volunteering to deliver congregate meals, playing the piano by ear, and just staying busy. Hazel was very grateful for the many friendships she had made in her lifetime. The support from family, the generosity of neighbors, and the love, support, and dedication of her husband for over 76 years. A special thank you to her amazing caretakers and the Essence of Life Hospice. A celebration of life will be held at 2 p.m. January 7th at the North English History Center. Dwight Trump Custer Sr. of Cedar Rapids, 88, passed away peacefully while surrounded by family members on the evening of December 28th after a long battle with dementia. He was a resident of Living Center West for four and a half years, where he received excellent care. His visitation will be on Saturday, January 7th, from 10 a.m. until noon 
at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, with a funeral service immediately following. Dwight was born on May 26, 1934, in Burlington. He was the second of ten children born to Zachary and Jeanette Trump Custer. As the oldest son in a large family, he bore a large responsibility at a young age. He was a paper boy for the Burlington Hawkeye and gave his parents money to help out. He made sure the family had a Christmas tree every year. He had grit and strong values and was a mentor to his siblings. Dwight was a proud teammate on the 1951 Burlington High School State Football Championship team. He graduated in the spring of 1952 and, later that fall, married his high school sweetheart, Geraldine Minthorn. He worked at his dad's gas station in White Acres and sold baked goods door-to-door. He was a fantastic salesman, honest, hardworking, and conscientious. Dwight took classes at Burlington Junior College, then headed north to Cedar Rapids, where he began a successful career in the life insurance industry. Dwight's first opportunity was with Metropolitan Life, selling policies and collecting premiums, and in short order was promoted to sales manager. He began chartered life underwriter courses and passed all the rigorous testing requirements in order to earn his his CLU designation in 1980. After 20 years at MetLife, he next became a general agent for National Life of Vermont, then regional vice president at Ohio National Life in Omaha, Nebraska. Ten years later, Dwight and his family returned to Cedar Rapids, where he opened his own agency, Custer & Associates, and was appointed the Eastern Iowa General Agent for Central Life of Iowa. At age 58, Dwight retired and started to enjoy the rewards of his life's work. Jerry and he traveled the world, Austria, Canada, England, France, Germany, Ireland, Israel, Italy, Mexico, Scotland, Tahiti, and various other U.S. states and cities. They wintered at a golf course community in Diamond Head, Mississippi for 21 years. Dwight loved to golf and in his lifetime carted five holes in one. You get kind of used to them after the first three or four, he used to joke. He had a fantastic sense of humor, a huge heart, and was a natural leader. He was actively involved with Habitat for Humanity, was a Paul Harris Fellow with Rotary International, past president of the Sertoma Club, and past president of Elmcrest Country Club, all in Cedar Rapids. Dwight was preceded in death by his parents, his siblings Mary Levins, Sandra Finnegan, Dean and Doran, and his brothers-in-law, James Eastburn, Michael Finnegan, and Patrick Levins. Dwight is survived by his wife of 70 years, Jerry Custer, his children, Dwight, wife Ellen, Custer Jr., Pamela Cole, and Jennifer, husband Matt Young, his brothers Tom, wife Jeannie Custer, and Dennis, wife Joyce Custer, his sisters Deborah Eastburn, Karen, husband Larry Eichmann, and Jan, husband Frank Hennefent. Sisters-in-law Sherry Custer and Linda Custer, nine grandchildren, four great-grandchildren, and many nieces, nephews, cousins, and friends. In lieu of flowers, consider donating to the Alzheimer's Association, or perhaps go out for a steak dinner with family and friends, raise a glass, and make a toast in honor of Dwight. He would love that. Donald Verl Wost of Marion, 93, of Terrace Glen, excuse me, Terrace Glen Village, Marion, passed away on December 31st. Visitation will be held on Friday, January 6th, from noon to 1 p.m., with the funeral immediately following at 1 p.m., at Faith Bible Church in Cedar Rapids, with Pastor Steve Benton officiating. Internment will be at Cedar Memorial in Cedar Rapids. A light lunch will follow at the church. 
Donald was born June 9, 1929, in Colesburg, the son of Joseph and Carrie Wost Brockmeyer. He married Charlene Bassett on June 3, 1951, and moved to Edgewood, and together they raised five children, Mark, wife Dana of Manterville, Minnesota, Donald and Peter of Osage, Karen of Cedar Rapids, Wanda, husband Scott Ort of Cedar Rapids, and Judy, husband John Grebe of Robbins. Donald worked for the Edgewood-Colesburg School District for 32 years as a bus driver and mechanic maintenance person. He and Charlene belonged to the first congregation—excuse me, the first congressional—I'm sorry, the first congregational church of Edgewood, Iowa, where he was the Sunday school superintendent for many years. In 1996, he and Charlene moved to Robbins and bought almost an acre of land and had a home built. He established the flower and vegetable garden for his wife, which featured a tiered bed, an arbor garden, a hosta bed, and hybrid and lily gardens. He started a hobby of scroll saw woodworking. Each item that he made was done with love and the wish for joy to whomever it was given. He made hundreds of items which brought smiles to people when they were given out at Christmas and other events. He and Charlene traveled extensively. They visited many countries, all five continents, and went on many cruises. It was a joy for them to take their five children, spouses, and grandchildren on six trips, including two trips to Alaska, Mexico, Costa Rica, Nova Scotia, and a national parks tour in the western United States. He was preceded in death by his parents and his two brothers, Stanley and Arvin, two sisters, Gladys and Hazel, a son-in-law, Cal Peter, and his wife, Charlene, of 63 years. He is survived by his five children, eight grandchildren, two step-grandchildren, one great-grandson, and five step-great-granddaughters. Beverly Jean Burrell, 84, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully on December 31st. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 5th, at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories Stateroom. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 6th, at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Interment will follow at Oak Hill Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Beverly graduated as a salutatorian from Mason City High School. She graduated from the University of Iowa with a degree in chemistry. She married the love of her life, James Burrell, on July 3, 1960, in Mason City. They were married for 46 wonderful years. Beverly worked for Iowa Workforce Development. During her 43-year career, she helped many people find a job and navigate the unemployment process. For approximately 20 years, one of her duties was announcing job openings on 600 WMT Radio. After retirement, Beverly met with her former co-workers once a month. Co-workers said Beverly was the go-to for any question. She was the smartest one in the office. She was tough and the most respected. Beverly was an active member of her community. She served on the board of directors for Jane Boyd Community House Board and Washington High School Athletic Club. In 2009, she was inducted into the Washington Warriors Athletics Club Hall of Fame. She loved being with her grandchildren, watching sports, spending time with her knitting group, and playing Scrabble with friends at the library. Family was most important to Beverly. She is survived by her children, Jamie Burrell, Brian, wife Rita, Douglas, Lori Johnson, Jeffrey, Gerald, wife Erin Frasher, Aaron, wife Mackenzie, Kevin, wife Lindsay, and Keith, wife Katie. Thirteen grandchildren, one great-grandchild, siblings, Pauletta, Kipper, 
Diana Bowers, Joseph, wife Sharon, Cotty, Andrea Cotty, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her husband James, parents Paul and Spizzy Cotty, siblings Pauline Cotty, Paul Cotty, Dwight Cotty, Ralph Cotty, Michael Cotty, Carolyn Cotty, and Pierre Cotty. Beverly's family would like to thank the Wright at Home staff, especially Samantha Bittner and Monica Niarora, and the staff at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital, notably nurses Ben and Jennifer, for their compassionate care. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made in Beverly's name to the American Diabetes Association and Alzheimer's Association. Letha Marie Pickart at Stite of Blairstown. Lisa Marie, 92, passed away peacefully on Saturday, December 31st, at the Hiawatha Care Center. Massive Christian burial will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, January 7th, at St. John Catholic Church in Blairstown, with Rev. Craig Steimel as celebrant. Interment will be held at Pleasant Hill Cemetery, at, excuse me, at Pleasant Hill Cemetery, Blairstown. Visitation will be held from 4 until 7 p.m. on Friday at the church in Blairstown. Dale William Ortner, Cedar Rapids, it's 95, passed away on Sunday, January 1st at Westridge Care Center. Services will be held 11 a.m. on Wednesday, January 4th at St. Pius X Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be held one hour prior, beginning at 10 a.m. at the church Inurment Holy Cross Cemetery in, an, in Anamosa at a later date. Dale was born September 12, 1927, in Carroll, Iowa, the son of Fred and Elizabeth Geyer Ortner. He graduated from Iowa State University with a Bachelor of Science degree in Industrial Engineering. Dale served in the United States Army and was honorably discharged in 1948. He was united in marriage to Jane Edith Maudsley on June 11, 1955, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Anamosa. Dale was employed as an industrial engineer at Rockwell Collins for his entire career. He enjoyed golfing and spending time with family and friends. Dale is survived by his four sons, Robert and Joseph, both of Cedar Rapids, Matthew, wife Tamara, of Crystal Lake, Illinois, and Michael of St. Paul, Minnesota. Two siblings, Tom, wife Donna, Ortner of Tennessee, and Nancy, husband Frank, Tobin of Missouri, and his grandchildren, Tara Ortner, Jack Ortner, and Abby Ortner. He was preceded in death by his parents and spouse, Jane Ortner. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Lorraine Mary Baumkamp of Cedar Rapids, 92, died Saturday, December 31st at the Woodlands at Methwick Community Services. 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 6th at St. Patrick Catholic Church by the Rev. Dennis Miller. Burial, Mount Calvary Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family after 9.30 a.m. at the church. Tian Funerals Home is serving the family. Lorraine was born in Cedar Rapids on July 9, 1930, to Frank W. and Catherine Seifert Baumkamp. She attended Clark College in Dubuque, graduated from Mount Mercy Junior College, and received her B.A. and M.A. degrees from the University of Iowa. She was a secretary in personnel at Century Engineering Corporation. Lorraine, Lorraine taught at the Wausau Technical Institute in Wisconsin and at Jefferson High School in Cedar Rapids. Throughout her lifetime, Lorraine received several awards, including the Certified Professional Secretary Award, 
conferred by the Institute for Certifying Secretaries, the Mount Mercy College Distinguished Alumni Award, and the Cedar Rapids Civic Group Women's Equality Award. She is listed in Who's Who of Women in the Midwest, Who's Who of American Women, Who's Who of Women in the World, and others. She belonged to several organizations, including the American Association of University Women, the Delta Kappa Gamma International Society of Key Women, Educators, Epsilon State, Theta Chapter, where she was a past president, Iowa Retired School Personnel, Mercy Auxiliary, National Catholic Society of Foresters, University of Iowa Alumni Association, and was a past member of several religious and community organizations. Lorraine was a member of St. Patrick's, Patrick's Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids. Lorraine is survived by her sister-in-law, Evelyn Baumkamp, three nieces, Lisa Anderson, Dana Baumkamp, and Catherine Baumkamp, two nephews, Brad, wife Victoria Baumkamp, and Christopher, wife Susan Baumkamp, several great-nieces and nephews and great-great-nieces. Lorraine was preceded in death by her parents, her brothers, Dr. Daryl Baumkamp and Dr. Donald Baumkamp, and her nephew, David Baumkamp. Lorraine enjoyed genealogy research, traveling, and music. She once commented, as she approached the end of her life, how fondly she remembered all the good relatives and friends who shared life's journey with her. Memorial contributions may be directed to St. Patrick's Catholic Church or a charity of the donor's choice. Cynthia Olson Kay, 67, of Eugene, Oregon, formerly of Fairfax, died Tuesday, December 6th. Celebration of life will be held from 6 to 9 a.m., January 7th, at Fairfax City Hall. Cynthia was born on September 11, 1965, excuse me, 1955, in Mason City, Iowa, daughter, daughter of Russell and the late Elvira Olson. She graduated from Prairie in 1974, united in marriage to Tim Kay in 1978. She had two daughters, Christina and Kelly. She loved animals, shopping, eating out, but most of all, her family. She was deeply loved and will be very much missed by all who knew her. She is survived by her daughters, Christina, husband Eric Hayes, and Kelly, husband Anthony Kreitz, both of Eugene, Oregon. Brother, David, wife Nancy Olson, father, Russell Olson, brother-in-law and sister-in-law, Brian and Patty Kay, niece and nephews, Angela Sherwood, Dwayne Olson, and Sean Olson, and many great nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her mother, Elvira Olson. Cynthia was diagnosed with ALS, and her amazing family stepped up to be caregivers. A huge thank you goes out to Dennis Kay, Pamela Kay, and Angie Sherwood for their love and support through this difficult time. A big thank you goes out to all the Kay family. Mark Joseph Angerer, Marion, was 68 when he died peaceful in his home peacefully in his home on Saturday, December 24th, after a long battle with cancer. Services are pending with Tian Funeral Home. Mark was born in DeWitt, Iowa, on February 7, 1954, to Jerry and Lois Blanche Angerer. He graduated from LaSalle High School, Cedar Rapids, in 1972. Following graduation, Mark worked as a mechanic at Novax Auto before becoming a union electrician journeyman. Mark had a love of dogs, horses, and motorcycles. He enjoyed canoeing and camping trips, including many adventures to the Colorado Rocky Mountains with friends. Mark was a good brother who liked to tease, but usually in a fun way. He was a younger sibling's favorite babysitter. It often involved big bowls of ice cream, staying up late, and racing in boxes down the carpeted stairs. Mark was not always the best influence, but he sure was fun. 
He had a big heart and was always there for his family and friends. Marcus Safari survived by his siblings, Steve, Danette, Sue, husband Jim, Guy, Anne, and Jennifer, husband Paul, Supel, Angerer. Numerous nieces and nephews, great nieces and nephews, and Don, husband Dan, Thomas, Prusman, and their children. He was preceded in death by his parents and sisters, Debbie and Mary Michelle. If you would like to remember Mark, please raise a Miller Lite or Bacardi and Coke to toast a great brother, son, uncle, and friend. Memorials may be made to the American Cancer Society or charity of donor's choice in Mark's name. Letha Marie Pickart Eitscheid, 82, passed away peacefully on Saturday at the Hiawatha Care Center. Mass of Christian burial will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, January 7th at St. John Catholic Church in Blairstown with Reverend, Keb, I'm sorry, Reverend Craig Steimel as celebrant. Interment will be held at Pleasant Hill Cemetery, Blairstown. Visitation will be held from 4 until 7 p.m. on Friday at the church in Blairstown. A memorial fund has been established. I think we have time for a few sports stories today. Um, I'm going to do some of the briefs. Out of pro football, player receives CPR on field after scary moment. This was in Cincinnati. The Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin, collapsed on the field and appeared to be getting CPR before being driven off the field in an ambulance during last night's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Hamlin collided with Bengals receiver T. Higgins after a completion, got to his feet, and then fell backward a second or two later and lay motionless. He was surrounded by stunned players from both teams and was taken off the field 16 minutes later. While medical personnel were gathered around Hamlin, his uniform was cut off and he appeared to be getting CPR. ESPN reported on the telecast that Hamlin was also given oxygen. He was strapped to a backboard and moved into the ambulance. The game was suspended at press time. Men's basketball, ISU back in top 25 after win Saturday. Iowa State is back in the Associated Press men's basketball top 25 after three unranked weeks, thanks to its win over Baylor. The Cyclones, with a record of 10-2, and two, topped the now ninth, number 19 Bears 75-56 on Saturday and have won three in a row. Purdue solidified its number one ranking following UConn's first loss of the season, but then the Boilermakers, number one for the fourth straight week, dropped a stunner at home last night, losing to Rutgers 65-64. Women's basketball, Iowa State rises, Iowa falls in AP poll. Iowa State moved up four spots to number 11, and Iowa fell four to number 16 in the latest Associated Press Women's Basketball Poll. The Cyclones, whose record is 9-2, and two, have won three in a row since falling to the Hawkeyes. Iowa, whose record is 11-4, and four, had its six-game winning streak snapped by Illinois on Sunday, 90-86. to 86. South Carolina finished 2022 at number one. UNI's Buffelli earns weekly MVC honor. Out of St. Louis, UNI junior forward Grace Buffelli was named Missouri Valley Conference Player of the Week for the first time this season. She was honored after averaging nearly a double-double last week. With 21 points and 9.5 rebounds in wins over Bradley and Illinois State. Drake's Meyer out for the remainder of the season. This is out of Des Moines. Drake women's basketball player Megan Meyer will miss the rest of the season, the school announced Monday. Meyer, who played her first two seasons at Iowa, suffered a torn ACL. She will have surgery on the to be determined date and will miss the remainder of the 2022 23 season. 
That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <music>